Well, greetings to you all. Uh, I want to welcome, welcome you here as well and bring greetings from, from sunny and dry Abbotsford. Oh no, I'm in Saskatoon. Actually, that's Saskatoon. Um, yeah, as Bruce has mentioned, I'm president of Columbia Bible College and he asked me to maybe just share a little bit about what's happening at Columbia. We've had a tremendous year with 425 students at Columbia and it's just, um, it's remarkable to see what is God is doing in their lives. Well, a couple of stories I wanted to share just really briefly. We've had a new church plant in, uh, in Abbotsford called City Life, and our student council president has been serving as an intern in this church, and, and it has really impacted our student body, just seeing so many of our students getting involved in serving on worship teams, as Sunday school teachers, as greeters, and really just full-on evangelists in the community. And that has impacted in so many ways in terms of our uh, Tuesday evening Vespers, packed out events. It's been really tremendous. I also wanted to thank you as a church for freeing up Bruce and Lisa to serve as our pastors on campus in the month of uh, February. They were there for about a week and had a tremendous ministry to so many of our students as they're trying to discern what is God's calling on their life. Where is God leading them next? Whether it could be into full-time ministry or perhaps into some other vocation, but wherever it is that God's leading them, how can they make an impact in the world? At Columbia, our vision is to be Christ-centered, kingdom-focused, and world-impacting. And one of the passages of Scripture that has become so pivotal for us in a culture and in a world that is full of so much uncertainty, is these, these words of Jesus right at the end of Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus says to his disciples, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, and I think that's such a critical element, it's not just hearing, are we putting them into practice? The person who does this is like a wise person who builds their house upon the rock. And the rains can come down and the winds can beat against that house and the waters can rise up and there are so many forces arrayed against us in our culture today. All of these things are coming against us. But the person who's built their house on the rock, their house will stand because they've built on that rock. They have a solid foundation. And that's what we're seeking to do at Columbia. For any of you who have interest in knowing a little bit more about some of our newer programs and how you can uh, look at a variety of different options, one, two, and four-year. Talk to me after the service. I, I'm going to stop my ad at, that point, at this point and get into our sermon for today. So as you heard, Pastor Bruce graciously gifted me with one of the most challenging passages that we can find in the book of Romans. And so I, I just want to thank him again for giving me this particular text. And it certainly is a challenge to unravel. But I also believe that this chapter plays an incredibly, incredibly significant role in the book of Romans. So while I may rather preach upon some of the incredible gifts of God that are described in Romans chapter 8, it is necessary for us to first understand the gravity of our human predicament so that we can truly appreciate what God has done in Christ and through his gift of the Holy Spirit to us. Well, in my sermon preparation, 
in the past few weeks. At one point, I, uh, I grew so frustrated. I, I said to our, we have a care group that meets regularly. I said, you know what, we're going to lay this aside and we're going to look at Romans chapter 7 together. I want to hear your perspectives on the text. Let's talk about this and, and wrestle with it together. And a few of the thoughts that I'm going to share this morning actually arose out of that, uh, out of that small group Bible study. And I should start by warning you that in Romans chapter 7, Paul does not provide us with a feel-good message or a self-help guide or a pep talk. This is a penetrating look at the human condition. And while it was written for a specific group of people at a specific time in history, and we, could, we, we look at this as first century Christians, probably most of them were coming from a Jewish background, even though it was written to those folks, it still speaks powerfully to us today. Now, many of you are going to be familiar with certain translations of this passage, but this morning I've chosen to purposely read from the message paraphrase, and it's because I believe Eugene Peterson has has done a good job of trying to get to the heart of what Paul was trying to communicate to us. Now, if you want to follow along in your NIV or your NRSV or whatever translation you may have, feel free to do so, but I'm going to read from the message. And I'm starting in verse 7. But I can hear you say, if the law code was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to to seduce me, Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled, and I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong into the ground. So sin was plenty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, and each command is sane, and it is holy counsel. Now, I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good? That is the law? Is good just as dangerous as evil? No, again. Simply did what, sin simply did what sin is famous for doing, using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever have accomplished on its own. Now I can anticipate the response that's coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. 
What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act in another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there nothing, is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Now, even reading it in the message, I recognize that this probably still sounds a little bit confusing, and how do we put this all together? So I'm going to try... And, and we'll work through this this morning in the next 20 minutes or so. And, um, and that's going to be a bit challenging, but hopefully we will all be able to, to pull something important from this text. So as we look at this passage, I want you to try and hold two things together at the same time. First, the biblical text, obviously, but also our current cultural realities. Now, you may wonder what I mean or what I'm getting at. We live in a culture that, is fundamental, that fundamentally disagrees with Paul's assessment of our human condition. There are many views out there, but there are two in particular that I want to focus on this morning. And both of them agree that at the core, human beings are essentially good. Let me explain. The first idea is what my friend, and he's a pastor in Northview Church in Abbotsford, he has referred to it as weak chic. What does he mean by this? In this view, it is now cool to be broken. All people have weaknesses, and those weaknesses are part of your core identity. Exploring personal flaws is a sign of authenticity and worthy of being celebrated because you are a unique individual. The goal is to be real. Individual autonomy and personal freedom are the supreme values. Lady Gaga's popular anthem, Born This Way, provides a great example. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself from regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. I can almost sing it. No, I won't do it. Um, So brokenness is now popular, not because it leads to growth, change, and transformation, but because it defines who we are. There's not really anything wrong with you. 
In this view, God made me this way, so I just need to be happy where I am because of who I am. Our humanity is defined by our brokenness, so I don't need fixing, nor do I need forgiveness. I would only contemplate trying to fix an aspect of my brokenness if that was something that I really wanted. I certainly wouldn't allow anyone or anything to judge me. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is a second view. This perspective also believes that we as human, value, as human beings have tremendous capacity to make our own way. However, unlike the previous view, it does not believe that brokenness is something to be celebrated, but rather it needs to be fixed or controlled. This is where religions, therapies, and ideologies enter, their, enter the picture. At their core, all of these ways of thinking argue that humans are in control and that we can fix ourselves if we have the right information and determined willpower. People trot out the Ten Commandments of Judaism, the Eightfold Path of Hinduism, the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, the Five Pillars of Islam, or even the Seven Sacraments of Catholicism as clear pathways that are all designed to make us godlike. Political philosophies and self-help therapies are no different in terms of the core belief that ultimately, given the right tools, humans can take control and create a flourishing world. That's the culture that we live in today. And Romans chapter 7 explodes the universal human myth that people are essentially good. Paul would suggest that we are naive about the external forces that are arrayed against us, and that we vastly underestimate the strength of our own sin nature while also wildly overestimating our own power to do what is right. As we look into this passage, I want to focus on three specific questions. Is God's law the problem or the solution? Secondly, why can't I handle things on my own? And thirdly, who is going to save us from this mess? Now, before answering question one, I want to remind you of some of the awesome truths that Paul announced in Romans 6 and at the beginning of chapter 7. We've just gone through that in the last couple of weeks. You may recall his declarations about being dead to sin and alive in Christ. In chapter 6, verse 22, he proclaimed, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Then in chapter 7, verses 4 to 6, he speaks of dying to the law so that we might belong to Christ and bear fruit for God. As Pastor Bruce mentioned last week, this takes place as we walk in the new way of the Spirit instead of the old way of the written code. As we journey through the rest of this chapter, I want you to keep the words of verse 6 close at hand because its reference to the Spirit is the key to experiencing victory in our battle. So, let's start with Paul, where Paul does, with a discussion of the law. Now, the natural place to look for a solution to the human incapacity to do what is right is to law. Whether the revealed law of Moses, as Paul is clearly referring to in this passage, or the natural law of creation, or perhaps even the laws, rules, and regulations that are found in the various world religions. Now, the Jewish reader gravitated towards the law. 
The psalmist in Psalm 19 said, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. But throughout the first half of Romans, Paul has been hammering away at the point that the law can't save anyone. Just a couple of verses earlier, he states that the sinful passions aroused by the law are at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now that's not exactly a sterling endorsement for the law. It actually sounds a lot more like an indictment. So what is it? Is the law the solution or the problem? According to Paul, it's neither. Now at this point I have a confession to make. I have long struggled with rules that tell me with what I can and can't do. Trust me, if you talk to my parents, they could give you many illustrations. I don't like being made to feel guilty or having my freedoms curtailed. So is that the law's fault or is that my problem? Does the fact that the law makes me aware of my rebellious, sinful nature make it evil? Is the law sinful, is what Paul asks. Of course not. The law is not the problem. We are. Paul begins with his question and then quickly provides an example of sin's power to manipulate the law for, his, for its own ends. As Paul says, I wouldn't really know what coveting was if the law hadn't made it clear that we're not to covet. Paul's use of this particular law from the Ten Commandments is not accidental. He picks up on the one command that reveals the desires and attitudes of our heart. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those are all external behaviors that can be held up to show how righteous we are. I don't steal, I don't kill, I don't commit adultery. But covetousness gets below the skin. Now Paul's illustration in this passage really connects with me. And I'll tell you why. Some years ago, I thought I had reached the point that covetousness or greed had lost its power on me. Here's what happened. We'd spent 12 years in Botswana working with people who struggled with poverty and disease. In, in our context, it was HIV AIDS. During those years, we were always the privileged ones, the wealthy whites from the West. Even though we were missionaries on a modest salary, we were exponentially richer than almost everyone that we came into contact with. Thankful for all the benefits we, had, we enjoyed, I thought, I'm no longer greedy. And then we returned to Canada. I remember December of 2004 extremely well. I really like football. And the NFL playoffs were fast approaching. Future Shop and The Brick were advertising big, beautiful, bold, flat-screen TVs. And all we had was this old, puny, grainy 32-inch. I started to whine and complain, and I tried to convince my wife how much she would enjoy watching her favorite TV shows on TV. I mean, really, it was all about her. Uh-huh. I had great arguments as to why this purchase was necessary. But in the end, it simply came down to my greed. I was guilty as charged. The law is about so much more than our external behaviors. 
And Jesus made this crystal clear when he unpacked the underlying meaning of the commandments of, of, of the commandments in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It's not just about murder. It's about anger and hatred. Don't commit, commit adultery, but are you lusting in your heart? Love your neighbor. That's easy. But can you love your enemy? God gave us the law so that we would know what true life is intended to look like. But even more importantly, so that we would have to look past the law to the one who has fulfilled all of its righteous requirements and then set us free. The problem with the law is not that it is sinful, but that it is weak. The law can never make anyone righteous, and it can't even protect us from sin. It can't even protect itself from sin. The law simply is. If sin takes control of the law and uses it for its own purposes, that's not the fault of the law, is what Paul tells us. Now, before moving any further, I'd like us to reflect for a moment on the nature of sin. What is Paul saying about sin in this passage? Now, maybe you've heard the standard definition of sin as missing the mark. And that's a good way of understanding our sins in the plural, our attitudes and actions that deviate from God's will. But there's something more that's going on in this passage. Sin, singular, is not just a verb. It's not just about a behavior or an attitude. It's a force which is essentially opposed to God. In this particular passage, I think you could almost use sin and, and Satan interchangeably because it's, it takes on a life of its own. Sin is bent on spoiling the world that God has made and especially the humans who reflect God's image. The incredibly destructive and deceptive power of sin is forcefully portrayed in this passage. We should not underestimate its ability to wreak havoc in our lives and in our world. Now, considering that the law, although intended to bring life, has become an instrument of death, it's almost surprising to read Paul's words in verse 12. And I'm now quoting from the New International Version where it says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law still tells us what God wants us to do. It's still valuable. It is, in fact, precisely because the law is good that it can show sin to be as sinister as it really is. Instead of using something evil, sin perverts something good to work its diabolical purposes. Sin is incredibly devious. As Paul puts it, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that the command, through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What a statement. Sin might become utterly sinful. So, for, so far, I'd say that things look pretty grim. Would you agree with me on that? It's going to get worse. So why can't I take care of things on my own? In verses 14 to 24, Paul makes it clear that we are unable to manage this. As he says in verse 14, the law is not our problem. It's our sinful, na our sinful nature, our natural inclination to rebel against God. Our sinful nature speaks of our existence as members of the race of Adam, 
sold under domination by sin and death because of our human propensity towards idolatry, especially self-idolatry. This is what I was explaining earlier. Our culture tells us that we're good. There is no need to change. We were just born this way. I mean, I might have an excuse to say that with the last name of born. Sorry, just had to throw that in there. But, um, but then, it, or if we realize that we've got issues that need fixing, then we think that we have the power to manage our own destiny. Living in the flesh describes the situation that we are in as a result of our attempt to be gods ourselves, to set our own course of action and our own values, rather than letting the one who is God truly be God. One thing that can be learned from Paul's description of our confusing and chaotic condition, if not in his action, at least in his heart, Paul agrees with the law of God, confessing it to be good. Paul hates those sins which which the law condemns. He wants to do what the law commands, but his sinful nature is opposed to it. Our sinful nature is opposed to God, and we just have to own up to that fact. It's opposed to God's rule and reign. And this is what is so frustrating. I think many of us can relate. I I would think all of us. We want to do what's right, but we seem incapable. The law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, and I am in bondage to sin. So is this true? Is this the final word? As I've said already, I think many people today would argue just the opposite. They would claim, I'm spiritual, and the law is merely a matter of externals. But that's not Paul's message. The law is spiritual. It's of God, whereas I am infected with sin. We are on two different wavelengths. And the problem goes even further than this. Paul's agreement with the law shows that the source of the problem is not just our sinful nature, but the strength of sin. We are being held hostage by sin within our own bodies. The weakness with the views of many secular humanists is that they regard sins as simple failures that can be remedied, while totally discounting the power of sin working within to create spiritual, relational, emotional, intellectual, and social destruction. Modern psychology is too optimistic about the hidden potential of the human mind. In-depth psychotherapy can clarify past problems and current feelings. It can provide tremendous help to the suffering individual. But human thought or willpower cannot solve the problem of sin, nor can it defeat its power. Possibility of thinkers assume that negative thinking or attitudes cause negative experiences like poverty or suffering. People believe that they can save themselves through the power of positive thinking with a little help from God. As the old saying goes, God helps those who help themselves. For for them, faith in God is really faith in oneself. And God's salvation can hardly be identified with self-help, self-esteem, Self-love, self-worth, self-fulfillment, self-awareness, self-actualization, self-realization. It's interesting that these words have become so popular in our culture. We cannot save ourselves. 
It is the same with all religions, including the Christianity practiced by some. Religion believes that I can become holy and please God by obeying commands, rules, or instructions. It measures one's level of spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. And the problem with religion is that it is far too confident in the human capacity to do what is right and far too naive as to the depths of our bent towards sin, rebellion, and evil. It judges by outward action and behaviors because it has no power to determine our inner attitudes or thoughts. This truth is profoundly illustrated in Jesus' interaction with the rich young man found in Matthew chapter 19. I love this passage. It's really insightful on this. Starting in verse 16, we read, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus replied, Why do you ask me about what is good? That's a religion question. Then Jesus responds, There is only one who is good. That's a relationship question. When it comes to salvation, it's not what you know. It's who you know. Jesus didn't dodge the significance of the law. He went on to say, If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. And at that point, this young man thought that he was on solid ground. He'd kept the commands. But Jesus pierced his religious veneer with his words. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. But he was unwilling to release control of his life. And so the rich man turned away sadly. That's the problem with all religion. All religions are an attempt to justify ourselves by our own actions and they will all fail at some point. But Paul knew better. Listen to his agonizing cry in Romans 7, verse 24. I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? If there is anything clear in this text, it is in the intensity of the war that is waging, being waged, speak, the intensity of the battle raging within us. The desperate struggle to do what is right in our own power leads to complete frustration and failure. There has been much scholarly debate about whether Paul was describing his own experience, the experience of the people of Israel, or the the universal human experience. Those who believe that this chapter is autobiography, in other words, that Paul was describing his own experience, then argue about, was it prior to his conversion or after his conversion? Personally, I don't think it's an either-or proposition. Everyone can relate to the frustrating dilemma that Paul describes in Romans 7. Why do we do the stupid, sinful, and hurtful things that we do? Why don't we love better? act more justly, and choose God's way instead of our own. What's wrong with us? If there were no answers for these questions, we would hardly dare to press on. But there is an answer. Praise God, there is a solution. This chapter ends on a high. My last point, who will help us out of this mess? Our deliverance from the power of sin and its grip on us due to our fallen nature 
is through Jesus Christ and his cross. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Paul's cry. We can't do it alone. Christ's teaching will produce a frustrated struggle if it is separated from faith in Jesus' power and presence. The gospel message itself is not the power of God, since it, like Moses' law, cannot be obeyed apart from God's presence and power. We cannot live the Christian life apart from Christ, who lives within us and transforms us into his image through the Holy Spirit. Some of our most tenderest nerves are are touched by Paul's teaching in this chapter. For the truths taught here could be the most depressing and hopeless realities of our lives. How great is your struggle? How great is my struggle to do what God wants us to do? If our struggle is as great as what Paul describes, we will give up our self-righteous efforts and turn to the cross. God has provided a righteousness that we cannot produce ourselves. The righteousness Jesus Christ brings to us, offers to us, comes through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul did not dwell on our sinful nature in order to discourage us. I hope that you're not going to leave this morning feeling discouraged. I hope instead that we would leave realizing the battle that we're in and recognizing that we have victory in Christ. The solution that we're going to hear next week, I'm going to make sure I listen to the sermon online, is Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about the fact that we are no longer under condemnation because of Christ Jesus, that the Holy Spirit lives within us and that we are God's children. But that's next week's sermon, so have fun with that one. You better come back and make sure that you have an awesome time of celebrating how the Holy Spirit is at work in us, transforming us, and setting us free from this body of sin and death. The battle will continue during this life, but we can experience victory through the Spirit of Jesus. Stand with me at this point in time. The worship team is going to come forward and lead us in, uh, in a few songs of worship and just recognizing our complete and utter dependence on Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we do ourselves no favor if we deceive ourselves and allow sin to deceive us. We are fallen. We are sinful. And we are in desperate and incredible need of your saving grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection. May you be honored and glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.